Well, good afternoon. Uh, I'm just going to record a little segment here. I know it's been a little while. I've been uh, a little occupied. Uh, but, very interesting. Came across a podcast, a Jordan Peterson podcast of all things, uh, with Dr. Uh, well, Ian McGilchrist. Ian McGilchrist. Uh, very well known in his field. Uh, really kind of fits into the stuff that I talk about. Right, the nature of consciousness, psychology, really well worth watching. It's a, a Jordan Peterson podcast 278. Uh, you can, uh, if you're interested, you can even ignore pretty much anything that Jordan Peterson says. And you can just listen to uh, Dr. McGilchrist. Uh, what I found really interesting, and I'm going to go try to go from start to finish, just some of the uh, uh, the uh, topics mentioned, and, and I'm going to add some of my own uh, insights as we go. Um, so they're discussing how we see, how we see the world around us, how we contextualize, how we understand, how we organize, how we de-abstract, right? How we find order in chaos. How do we categorize uh, what matters and, and what uh, is salient to us? We've discussed this before, right? Um, so he talks about the left and right-hand brain. Oop, I forgot to get uh, the actual title of his book. Um, well, I guess I should probably find... Oh, yeah, my apologies. So the book mainly they were discussing, uh, I believe this is his most recent book, uh, it's called The Matter with Things by Ian McGilchrist. Uh, in two volumes, volume one is The Ways to Truth, and volume two is What Then is True. Uh, why I'm familiar with uh, Dr. McGilchrist, uh, The Master and His Emissary uh, was a book that he wrote a long time ago, uh, 2009. And then more recently, I really thought this was uh, the divided brain and the search for meaning. Right? And builds upon that, another book he wrote was Ways of Attending, How Our Divided Brain Constructs the World. The reason why I went back and got the actual titles because it, it applies to why he seems so concentrated on the right and left uh, hemispheres of the brain. So, as I said... Uh, he's occupied with um, how do we contextualize our reality, our experience. But it goes deeper than that. It's also talking about where, how, and why do we place meaning. Right? So he first starts uh, to talk about the left hemisphere of the brain um, being a dualistic view of the world, um, a deconstructionist sort of view of the world, the left hand being anti-gestalt. So it's not seeing the world as patterns, the way we usually see things. Uh, it's seeing individual pieces. I've explained this before with gestalt, that when you look at a cat, you see a cat. You don't see pads and fur and tail and teeth and nails. So the left hemisphere, according to Gilchrist, is obsessed with breaking down those that pattern recognition uh, and, of course, he goes on to talk about how we're at risk of being um, too um, focused on, um, how would I put this, 
Uh, well, actually, later we talk about this. So it's the reverse of not seeing the forest for the trees. So what he's saying here is the left hemisphere, because it will break down a forest into the trees, we're at risk of only seeing the trees, not the forest. So are we only going to see the microcosm in the left hemisphere? And this becomes important because he says a lot of what we're dealing with today, possibly even Carl Jung's modern malaise, might be a left hemisphere problem. Right? It might be anxiety, it might be uh, on the spectrum, Asperger's or autism. Uh, he mentioned anorexia being on a similar uh, spectrum as far as being far too left, uh, like uh, dualistic in its approach to viewing and parsing the world. So it goes on, uh, and he talks about right parts of the whole. Carving it into parts is what the left hemisphere does. Again, I mentioned anti-gestalt. It's a different take on the world versus the right-hand side. Calls it atomistic and separate from itself. To freeze time, to make sense. So this is why the left hemisphere does this, is so that we can contextualize, understand. Um, and we'll get into some of the other skills that we use to, uh, to achieve this. Again, as I said, seeing the forest for the trees, uh, in this case, it's being able to see uh, the trees and the forest, not being, uh, well, it is seeing the forest for the trees, but you know what I mean. I'm trying to explain it uh, as I go through my silly notes here. So he talks about how the left and right must be combined. He says how dangerous it is to be stuck in one mode of thinking. So this, to me, is the non-dualistic approach that is resident uh, throughout a lot of these philosophies that I tend to talk about. So he goes on and talks about the right hemisphere. Right? He, uh, he says it sees a coherent, uh, a coherence, right? Um, it sees a, a system, a pattern. It sees change. It sees context in situ. So it, it understands that it can see the, 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 the cat's tail, uh, but not apart from the cat. So it can see both at once, right? Left alone, it sees life, the left, sorry, uh, I jumped a little ahead here. So uh, it sees context, implicit, uh, it's uh, perception, it's a rich embodied living world as perceived from the right hemisphere. He says if the left were to see alone, if we were to have to navigate the world via the left hemisphere alone, he said um, it would see life as a machine. He said this earlier, uh, inanimate, mechanistic. Whereas the right hand, as I said, rich and embodied, he says the right hemisphere will see all as living. This idea that we're able to see order in chaos, the example I've given before, that we tend to see faces in, uh, in patterns, right? Uh, in clouds, in bark on trees, or, uh, you know, uh, uh, what have you. He goes on, as I said, talks about how anorexia, my apology, is very similar because it's not a gestalt. Uh, they talk about how it's damage to the brain is... It's not seeing, it's not balancing this left and right um, aspect, right? So when it looks at the body, it only sees the flaws. It doesn't see the gestalt, right? And the right hemisphere sees the body of the whole, 
versus the left seeing only parts. So he talks about anorexia being a right hemisphere deficit like autism. And so it goes on, and we're going to talk about McGilchrist's new book. And he wants to highlight attention, importance, pretense, presence. My apology, I can't read. Presence. <laughs> Perception. Judgment. Emotional intelligence. Social intelligence. Cognitive intelligence. Essentially uh, intelligent quotient, the IQ. But creativity. I love that he made sure to highlight that. Maybe even better that it's listed last. He says the left is inferior to the right. Right, because the right, as we've explained... The right can see patterns and parts, whereas the left is only to see, only able to see parts. So he goes on and talks about these neurological issues uh, of uh, anorexia, of uh, autism, some of these other, I would argue it could be ADHD. Uh, he mentions obsessive compulsive disorder. So a lot of these um, Neurological issues could be a damage to the right or a disconnect to the right hemisphere. Or, as they mentioned, could be uh, an over-evaluation um, of the left hemisphere's uh, preference or opinion. So he goes on and we talk about science, reason, intuition, imagination. I've talked about this a number of times. How when you're looking at what is logic, what is reason, uh, what is wisdom... It has to do with the parsing of data, which requires your memory and your imagination and your cognition. So all of this is very important. But they go one step deeper. And he talks about how in the last couple of, say, centuries, most people had culture, interaction with nature. They had narrative and myths, drama, literature, poetry. Uh, but they had very little from the public debate. When they say public debate here, what they're talking about is the herd, the rabble, uh, the marketplace of ideas, as Nietzsche called it in Zarathustra. Uh, this idea of what is currently uh, the popular thing. And they mention um, how important inconsistency is. Right? Inconsistency is not all bad. It's an attempt to seek the truth. Separate from the podcast, I'd love to remind you of Charles Sanders Peirce reminding us that the first rule of logic is doubt. So they go on and talk about Jung, how his dreams, uh, his theory that dreams extend the left hemisphere with a paradox, uh, a, a danger, of course. But it allows us to extend our imagination, helps us to fill in the unknown. I argue, is that trust? Is that reason? Is this making my case that the human brain is just the most powerful computer that we've ever experienced and we're unable to understand not just what it's able to parse, but how it's doing it or even understand that it is doing it, right? They go on to talk about reason. Reason composed of two main components, logic and what we bring together which is logic, experience, context, the wisdom, the insight. So the process of logic and our experience, our understanding, and our intention, our ethos, our telos, what guides us, what matters to us, all of this informs. Um, 
So he mentions uh, he mentioned uh, skeletal reasoning. I believe he mentioned it. So very basic core reasoning. Uh, it's advanced, uh, nuanced. Sorry, nuanced, sober, inclusive. He says uh, the correct. We can we cannot answer all questions. Was a a quote right after this talking about logic and reason. And so I marked down, is this once again where my theory of trust comes in? That the thing that's really missing is not region, reason or logic or even blind faith, but it's trust. Trust in either the system, trust in either yourself, trust in you, you name it. Right? So we'll go on. And he says this can lead to abstract thinking. It can lead to falsehoods or, or uh, as much. It can lead to falsehoods as much as insights, right? That's where I mentioned in my notes about the first rule of logic being doubt. He mentions OCD and also shares with the anorexia. I would also argue maybe with a number of these other clusters like possibly ADHD, Asperger's, dyslexia, ASD, right? Left side issues. They mention explicit context or I mentioned forced meaning. When they're talking about this idea of explicit context, they seem to have missed this idea that meaning being placed arbitrarily, that allows us to place it. And that's where this, this weirdness gets. If you look at, say, some issues, they can misapply this sort of synchronicity or explicit context. Um, that's this... Um, fear of leading to falsehoods. But, again, first rule of logic is doubt, as long as you're taking care of yourself in other areas. So, uh, Jordan Peterson goes on and mentions that he knew a philosopher with OCD who mentioned when he was studying phenomenology, it helped with his OCD. Uh, he, the reasons behind it were terribly flawed, I think. But we could pull on that string a little further. Uh, phenomenology, uh, or was it because he found it interesting? I argue it's likely the mindfulness. Uh, we've proven this with education, that if you find something really interesting, you're passionate about it, then you tend um, uh, to be much more focused, which is the focus of Dr. McGrillchrist's um, uh, thesis here, is the most important thing is awareness, it's presence, it's focus. Right, Because he goes on from here and he talks about loss of consequence. Right? He calls it focal dysphoria. Right? So he thinks that, as Carl Jung said, the majority of evil in this world can be traced to most people walking around completely unconscious. Dr. McGrillchrist goes one step further and says, when we become this apathetic herd that Nietzsche and Jung warned us of, when we have lost consequence, meaning we don't see meaning anywhere, pardon my puns, <laughs> too much James Joyce lately, when we lose consequence in our life, meaning uh, when we no longer care about anything, when we become apathetic, we, we develop something called focal uh, dysphoria, where we're unable to focus, we're unable to find what is salient, because nothing seems to matter. He talks about uh, intuition and imagination, right? How important those things are. 
if we experience something new and different, um, what's the word uh, I'm looking for here? Um, but but it's something you've never experienced before. You need to use your imagination to try to figure out how to contextualize this experience. Right? Uh, he mentions optical illusions. That's very cool because he uses it in a couple ways, and I'll go one step further. He talks about um, that we will enjoy optical illusions, but we won't walk around distrusting our eyes. I laugh because I don't trust my lying eyes because I have severe dyslexia. But the average person might not. But where this becomes almost oxymoronic is to your neurotypical seeing an optical illusion. It doesn't make them question their, their vision or their optics, their perception. But to a dyslexic, it does, but for a different reason. Because when everyone else is looking at an optical illusion, I'm seeing both. If you look at Ruben's vase, or um, there's other examples, but white space to the dyslexic doesn't jump out as much as it does to the neurotypical. When I look at Ruben's vase, I see the vases and the faces at once, and of course by choice that I can, I can uh, switch between. So for us as a dyslexic, it shows us how absolutely dysphoric we are from perception reality and what would be normal perception for us versus uh, neurotypical perception. What we're told is normal perception, right? But he says, we never distrust our, um, our, uh, our eyes, yet we, we often distrust our intuition, right? So I put in, this is a doubt and faith, right? Trust, trust. Right? So he's arguing to rehabilitate intuition because he thinks that, and this is what's beautiful, because I'll just read what I wrote here. He says a diagnosis basis, uh, based on too many parts, right? because that's what they're doing in this section right here, about 34 minutes in. I argue this is a three-body problem. We're not going to be able to point it out directly. But he's getting there. But then he jumps to uh, Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow. He mentions there was some inconsistencies in the support of some of the assumptions he made. I'd love to go in and take a look at that. I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, my main critique of Daniel Kahneman's book, uh, Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow, is it's twice as thick as it needs to be. So it makes sense that he's put like the same paragraphs in a dozen times to pad this book. It would make sense that he might have made some mistakes in in his uh, research uh, assumptions, but that's I mean that's everybody. Uh, there's a lot of great information in that book. I still think it's worth the read. But he goes on and talks about the intuition, and I argue again: is this proving my theory that intuition, or one step further, induction, is actually the super brain machine? It's the fact that the human brain between cognition and maybe this Della, this collective unconscious or uh, another uh, unconscious we're able to tap into like William James in Radical Empiricism. Is it, is it the archetypes uh, that Jung mentioned? Or is it just like these gentlemen think? Is it intuition? Is it the fact that we're able to parse more data than we can even realize? The human brain is a supercomputer. So is 
the uh, the open problem of induction, only the open problem of cognition and how incredibly powerful it might be. So they go on uh, and they talk about uh, instinct, right? So intuition versus instinct. It's funny because why do we separate the two, right? They should be informing each other. I've talked about this before. The only problem with trauma, or more importantly, trauma-informed adaptations, is they tend to be negative. So when we were first evolving, if you heard rustling in the bush, it would be uh, smart for you to first wonder if it was a tiger ready to pounce. In the 21st century, it really doesn't make any sense for us to assume the worst uh, in a lot of cases, because uh, we're unlikely going to be attacked by a saber-toothed tiger. Uh, maybe a furry, uh, but I just mean seriously. Uh, the likelihood is much, much lower than it was, you know, maybe a few thousand centuries ago. <laughs> so he talks about instinct, heuristics, prejudices, reactions, eureka moments, everything I've just mentioned, right? Prejudices, right, uh, can lead us heuristics is just us parsing data and experience and imagination reactions again these are adaptations to previous experience right so he goes on and talks about why there's such a a huge difference between fantasy and imagination i really did like how he explained this that fantasy takes us away from reality an escape whereas imagination is a way into life right Fantasy is a way out and imagination a way in. The imagination allows us to make that contextual focal connection. So he says, imagination, like Coleridge, is a divine gift. Coleridge said this, it's a divine gift. He says, to see in a new way. To see meaning, maybe, is what I added to that. Intuition and imagination for a better science and better reason. I argue absolutely. How many times have I said that our mistake was when we separated science from philosophy and, and all of the other... Um, anything that um, applies to our human experience. How dare we separate them? Right? It's the gestalt of our experience. So he says, uh, there's not enough science and reason. Too much dogma. Funny, very apropos and timely, is it not? So he goes on, he talks about the nexus of associations. I like that the way he said that. But that's just, you know, what matters to us and, you know, why we do what we do and why it matters. Um, he says, uh, stronger versus uh, looser, right? So this is this nexus, this connection of associations. Um uh, he says it's, it's likely uh, part of what uh, helps us to navigate through life, well, obviously. So he says to, uh, to be able to describe how the right hemisphere, he says imagination comes to a conclusion. Induction. Gestalt. Eureka. And they ask a question. Is the scientific method fiction? And they chuckle. I argue, no, it's not. It's just simply having a strong sense of doubt. Even when you're pretty sure about your hypothesis, keep, keep a strong sense of doubt. Right? So he says there should be no conflict between science, reason, and intuition. 
says the right hemisphere's contribution to it all, it helps us make these leaps, right, that come from imagination, right? Uh, Einstein's imagination to see uh, special relativity or the speed of light. Uh, we see or we think, this is me, we see or think in images. So imagination is closer to our natural thought state. Does this remove translation errors? Right? Does this allow you to think more clearly, more purely, more, more organically? They go on and talk about music, how music is gestalt. There is no separating of, of the musical notes from the musical piece. Eh, but I get what they mean by this. Right? He says the right is open, active, receptivity, whereas the left hemisphere categorizes. It's abstract. Right? We go back to the right hemisphere for a complete picture, the whole, the gestalt. Right? Like muscle memory, as it applies to thought, that's my thought, I put that in, we see the pieces of a motorcycle as a whole. I use the example of a cat. They use the idea of a motorcycle. Right? So he goes on and says in the third part of his book is about metaphysics, one of my favorite subjects. He says the first three chapters talk about two two elements mainly uh, opposites uh, conjunctions right he says that Jung knew uh, that we think in linear patterns right uh, circular patterns maybe is my question right lines uh, I laugh because uh, I was watching a gentleman who uses a fude brush uh, fude pen uh, to sketch I use it to draw he was talking about how he's an architect and he likes to draw straight lines. It makes a lot of sense to me because I saw this type of a fountain pen called a ruler pen. And it can only do lines, straight lines. That's all it can do. To me, that seems ridiculous. Right? It's so limiting. Uh, but it makes perfect sense because uh, to try to make sense of things, the left hemisphere tries to simplify things. So... Jung predicted this left hemisphere, or what it would be called uh, a right hemisphere deficit. The modern malaise is a right hemispherical um, uh, deficit because we're only seeing pieces of the pattern and without stepping back and seeing the complete picture, we're completely lost, right? That's that focal uh, dysphoria. So circular patterns. It's, it's Joyce, it's Jung, it's Nietzsche. So he makes a quote, he says, too much desire for freedom leads to tyranny. This is what he meant by that. Uh, like in 1984. Uh, but the better example I give is why we give people three choices for, say, a, a coffee cup. If you gave them two, you know, they might think, eh, it's not enough choice, I don't fit in there. You give them four or five or six, that might be too much. They might never be able to choose. Three, we've tended to see, I argue with uh, the drop in attention span, there may be, uh, you know, a change to this uh, science, but we did see that three was the happy medium, that people found that satisfy their need for adequate uh, choice, but not so much that they got lost, right? Too much freedom. Uh, leads to tyranny. And he goes on, and this is my favorite part, the one and the many. Right? I want to point you to Carl Jung and more importantly to the I Ching. Uh, right? Be 
in the uh, Chinese Book of Change, the parts make the whole, right? The con constituents of reality, right? So they jump from the idea of equanimity and how that can allow us to see meaning in this world without needing some sort of sky daddy, as these guys later go on to talk about. But they just jumped past this idea of the one and the many, right? This is taught in Buddhism, in Vedanta, uh, and they talk about uh, Horus, uh, but it's in uh, Zoroastrianism, right? The Azura Mazda, uh, the seeing eye in that. Uh, this is know thyself, uh, the Greek maxim. Right? So don't jump so quick to the constituents of reality before you realize that the one and the many, equanimity itself, is what we need to be paying attention to. I'm going to hide that light myself that a little more. So they go on and talk about the constituents of reality, what, what makes up our experience, what makes up our reality, uh, what's the information we need to parse. He mentions time, space, flow, matter, consciousness, purpose, he, uh, Jordan Peterson mentions the importance of awe. He calls it uh, pyloerection. I haven't looked that up. Uh, I, I... So, values, purpose, uh, a sense of the sacred. Jordan Peterson loves that, but that's just meaning, value, uh, gravitas. He says, not invented, we discover. So this is this belief that, uh, like Jung said, again, he's plagiarizing Jung a lot without giving him credit. Uh, Jung said that um, this need for ritual and, um, and ceremony is natural to us. Right? Not necessarily religion. This is why it's weird that Jordan Peterson seems so obsessed with the religion itself, when, as I said, even in this discussion, there's an agreement that there is no need for, for theism in any way. It's just a need for the awe that he mentions. That's it. Full stop. Right? Uh, so it says explore or to unveil. I love that, right? Because this takes us back to uh, Joyce, James Joyce and Carl Jung, and even before that, um, Madame Blavatsky and the Theosophical Society, right? Isis unveiled uh, or all the way back to Nietzsche, right? We must restore the providence, right? So I'll go from the divine, and I'll say providence. Providence is much closer to this, what makes the flowers grow, right? Emerson or Spinoza or Whitman's idea of what is, you know, divine, what is providence. He mentions, of course, uh, Dawkins, right? Reduces the religious enterprise uh, to trying to just, you know, say, what is it? When, again, it's a meta thing. It's impossible. So he says, uh, not proofs, but wonder, awe, trust, passion. Exactly. So there's no certainty. So you can't say for certain that religion is it, but this meaningful action, karma yoga in the Bhagavad Gita, this idea of purpose, of endeavor, of acceptance and, and meaning intention being an act itself. So he goes on and talks about Shakespeare as evolutionary biology. It's kind of funny, uh, but it's not. It's just human behavior. People ask me why I think this is so universal, right? Um, almost any of these 
philosophies or thought systems because they're all universal human truths, right? You can see the teachings of the uh, Anishinaabe uh, people, uh, the, the Ojibwe, the Algonquin, the, the uh, center of North American people. They talk about being brothers with the East and West Coast people. And they have the same archetypes uh, as just about every other civilization on the planet. And they go on and say the great questions are based in passion, or that might have been me, not bare wonder, not question or speculation, but striven for or enticed to passion, right? Ah, oh, I love this. Um, an author was talking about uh, picking the subject for your book and making sure it's the right subject. And he talks about how I mean, it should be a book that you have to write. Not that you want to write or should write or could write or can write, but something that you have to get out of you. You have to write this. You must. That's something that has meaning, as it were. Right? And he goes on. Uh, let's see here. And, and uh, JP, uh, as an aside, I believe, uh, he mentions evolutionary biology. Um, he feels that... Um, Wagner's, uh, I can't remember which one, uh, Dimeister, I can't remember which, uh, but if you're listening to the podcast, uh, one of Wagner's um, uh, operas, supposedly, was his idea as the best uh, explanation of evolutionary biology. Then they go on and talk about the collapse of the waveform. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, that's this idea that right, uh, something can be both a wave... Um, uh, and a particle at the exact same time. But it's both until it's observed. I've mentioned this before. Call it I call it the superposition. That's what we need to be in. And they didn't get into that. They didn't explain this idea. The collapse of the waveform is to teach us the tetralemma, the chetoscoti, the Schrodinger's cat. Okay? It's not that he's dead or alive. It's the fact that the cat is both. The lesson is so simple, so profound, yet so easily uh, misconveyed and misconstrued. So you put the box and the cat and the poison together, and without knowing what's going on inside, they are both dead and alive all at the same time. This is this great sense of doubt all at once. Right, this great superposition. We just have to be able to to keep that in mind. All right. So what's here? What's next? Collapse of the waveform. Uh, so he says the right, uh, present, uh, the contextual reality meaning. Uh, we break it down. Right. So it's up to us. Uh, so again, this is just getting to the idea of. Because the collapse of the waveform requires uh, an observer, this is the idea that uh, contextual reality requires the observer as well. Very similar to the Kyoto School, this Basho that I've mentioned, that um, presence is what's required for uh, actual living, right? Uh, so he says, subdue reality, right? To um, categorize it, to place meaning, right? We need... Uh, for context, a need for context, right? To understand, right? For our reality, for our logos, for our ethos, for our telos, right? So what matters to us? 
what, um, where we're going and why, uh, you know, everything about us. So they talk about this Jacob's Ladder uh, with reference to uh, William Blake, the, the poem poet, how he wrote it as a spiral ladder. I really love that because it reminds me of uh, St. John of the Cross in his Dark Night of the Soul, right? And as Hemingway said, uh, it is only honorable to be greater than your previous self. But this idea that the Dark Night of the Soul is a constant uh, thing that we... It, what's the word I used? To, well, good day. If you watched all of part one already that was uploaded yesterday and I left you hanging, my apologies. Um, just by the nature of the way these things work, uh, I don't seem to, like the, my top viewed episodes, both uh, in the podcast and on YouTube, are at least a year old. Um, they take some time before they tend to get um, some traction. Seems to be a a core cabal group of people who seem to listen to them pretty quickly as they go up, but that's a small group. And uh, hopefully they understood by me labeling part one and having to have cut it off so quick. I hope they understand that I would continue. And here we are. So we uh, finished off the last section talking about uh, the collapse of wave function. I went into it a little deeper talking about how... Um, uh, the Schrodinger cat uh, thought experiment can teach us the tetralemma, the chattiscoti, uh, that not everything has an answer. Uh, being guided by doubt can actually uh, make us more um, present uh, as well as um, more insightful. I've talked about this in previous podcasts that um, the true gauge of being uh, an, an excellent forecaster uh, human forecaster. One of the hardest things for the human uh, creature to do is predict the future. And some of the greatest uh, human forecasters are those with a strong sense of doubt, particularly in their own uh, opinions, their own uh, hypotheses. I mentioned that earlier. I apologize. So I'll carry on, um, but halfway through the page here, we only have, what, two, four, six, uh, seven and a half more pages to go. This is uh, Mortimer Alder's um, lessons for how to be uh, a really good reader if you apply that same analytical approach to everything you learn and listen and, and want to retain. This is where you can go. Two-hour podcast that actually led me probably to produce more content uh, than the podcast itself. So they go on and talk about a dream to achieve. Or I put that in, I apologize. But this idea of manifesting your reality, it relates to them talking about narrative, right? Myth, um, uh, tradition, that they're not any different, um, right? Planning, vision, right? This idea of it being useful for us to use our imagination uh, as long as we don't allow, a, allow it to uh, take us down the road of delusion. So they go on and they talk about the importance of attention, the importance of attention, and that it could be considered a moral act, right? Because it changes us. Right? It's not passive. I've talked about this before, just uh, the acceptance of our lot, amor fati, is itself 
an incredible act, an action itself, even though it's just acceptance, even though it's only a thought, it is itself a greater act than many people uh, carry out in everyday life. This is this talking about, um, I make a joke about the death knell. Um, don't ask for whom the bell tolls. Because who was it that said, um, if we live uh, without learning, uh, we're barely more than animals, right? So as uh, Camus is talking about, if you don't embrace um, life, existence, then you might as well be already uh, passed on. Same as uh, the, the off-quoted uh, discussion of, uh, who was it that said it? Many people have said it in different ways, but the idea that um, um, many people die at 25, but they're not buried until, you know, they're in their 70s. So we're talking about how important this is, the importance of intention, of presence, of awareness, of, of well, presence, right? This is uh, what I mentioned earlier, basho. In Japanese, basho is the place where action meets the individual ready to take action. This is actually the karma yoga uh, in the Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavad Gita, most people have heard of. It's uh, the, the song of, of the, the great song, I guess we'll call it. And in it, we have Krishna speaking to Arjuna. Arjuna is looking for some guidance on how to navigate our reality. And Krishna explains uh, a number of different ways to proceed and how to achieve um, this oneness, this union. That's what yoga means, uh, this to yoke oneself to to the divine, right? Um, to to unite, unity, equanimity, uh, upeksha, upeka. Um, and and he gives him a number of different options, but he he finalizes, uh, not finalizes. He he um, he finally uh, says what's the ultimate, and says that it's karma yoga. So it's action. Action is the greatest because it it uh, next to the the devotion, uh, the confidence, the commitment, um, action is what. Um, begins just about everything. So I argue the importance of intention, karma yoga, but we're also seeing another Sanskrit expression that I often talk about, sati sampajana. Right? So mindfulness, true mindfulness, is to apply this knowledge, this awareness, sati, to all of life's daily activities, sampajana. So sati sampajana, which is the, uh, the heart of Buddhism, of Vedanta as well, much more clear in Vedanta and Shaivism, uh, Tantra especially, reminds us that everything is a tool to awareness, to enlightenment, to mokshi, uh, mukti, uh, nirvana, uh, naroda, cessation of what uh, is causing us our trouble. Right? So you can see the union between the East and the West, that there isn't a difference in the philosophies. There's a difference in the embracing of the philosophy, of an understanding, of an acceptance, of an embodiment of the philosophy. It's resident in both camps, but as I've said before, 
in the East is where you see meaning being embraced for nearly everything, and in the West, nearly nothing. And they go on, uh, Jordan Peterson discusses his belief in a system ordered by God versus not ordered. And I argue he misses that an ordered system can serve the same purpose or benefit as one uh, with a God. Uh, love and truth. Right? Here's why uh, he may need a dad. This idea that if you don't have agency, if you don't have self-confidence, if you don't know thyself, then that's why it's so often these people turn to gurus. It's because they're looking for someone else to guide them, someone else to tell them. When in reality, it's like Bruce Lee said, don't mistake the finger pointing to the moon as the path, as the guide, as everything. It's just telling you where you need to begin your journey. Walking of the path, enlightenment, awareness, insight, all of this requires the self, requires agency. Nobody can do this for you. And then they go on and talk about all that exists is in relation, context. This is kind of like empiricism, right? Uh, his book, McGilchrist's book, the matter with things. He's talking about material versus all things in our world. Talks about a relationship is all, right? Relation, context, attention is exposure to the world. This is no different than the Kyoto School, uh, Nishitani, uh, and um, God, the other, the other Kyoto practitioner starts with an N and, and it fails me his name but this idea of presence right Jung talked about this as well you need to be present uh, to know what's important what's salient what's right you need uh, to be present to get the context to apply the meaning right so he says love is care of creation Right? Uh, life here. So this becomes kind of confusing because in Buddhism it's, it's not uncommon where you might even have a monk who might say that it's wrong to want to have a family. This is why I'm a tantric Buddhist because I don't see a separation between wanting to care and create and yet still not being deluded and trapped within this realm of consciousness. Because if we're here for a short time or a long time, I think it's blasphemous for us to not embrace what a wonderful gift it is. Um, and they mention that there is nothing other than relationships. Exactly. Uh, even Bertrand Russell talked about this when it comes to language. They mentioned this either before or after. That uh, And I think it's a misunderstanding on, on Jordan Peterson's part. He talked about how language was the birth of consciousness. I believe that's actually what Nietzsche said. But he mis... I think he misconstrued exactly or just misquoted. It's not the first time he's done that. Um, but just like Bertrand Russell or Nietzsche said, 
that context is everything, right? Um, the example, I think I'm stealing it from a recent book, but this idea of um, Socrates is dead. And now I use that in a new sense too, in a modern sense. So it can have multiple meanings. Socrates is dead. We could be talking about a gentleman that perhaps both of us know and we can agree on, yes, he died in Greece a long time ago. Another context could be Socrates is dead and I don't know who Socrates is, so I'm just, oh my gosh, you lost a friend, a family member, what have you. I don't know the details. But then there's a third context. Socrates is dead in the sense that questioning, logic, reason, understanding, introspection is gone, is dead, right? So very much relationship, right? My relationship to you, so you understand my context, my relationship to my culture, so that I understand the context of my language and, of course, my consciousness and its relationship to my language because that's how my consciousness is not formed, as they tried to put across, but it is definitely how I share my consciousness. Again, I talked about this earlier, that imagination might be so powerful because as human creatures, we tend to think in images. So, of course, we're translating these images, very personal images, into sounds and noises that we make with our face. So it's not difficult to understand how important relationship is. But if you think language, communication being 80% nonverbal, that highlights as well the importance of relationship and presence. Because if you're not paying attention, you're going to miss the meaning and the message. He mentions A.N. Whitehead, um, a philosopher, uh, I'm going to have to go in. It's been a while since uh, I looked in A.N. Whitehead. I'm not exactly sure what he was getting at. Um, they go on and talk about truth and love again, union with logos. So just this idea of finding meaning, um, the, the meaning that quickens, as Jung said. Um, he talks about the divine word, right? Could that be the Greek and Judeo-Christian? Um, again, I'm surprised by this because he should understand this even more being a Nietzschean and a Jungian because it's not just the Greek and the Judeo-Christian idea. Uh, that's why Nietzsche went to uh, Zoroaster, this uh, Zoroaster, my apology, uh, this um, religion, this one of the very first monotheistic religions. And I've mentioned this earlier too because they go on and start talking about Horus and the all-seeing eye when that also predates uh, this discussion and and it, it just it boggles my mind how much is left on the table in some of these discussions. I know limited for time, um, but when so much like the Greek, I think is not quite as as um, heavily laden with baggage as say the Judeo Christian um, ethos is, uh, but knowing that that only resonates to a very small audience you'd think they'd, they'd wake up. I mean, especially being a Jungian, you should understand that these same lessons are within the Eastern um, ethos. So I don't know why we're so, so, again, 
it seems to be a choice to very to to limit our perspective. If you're looking for answers, why would you purposely choose to limit um, limit avenues for for understanding? Right? So he goes on. He talks about uh, Goethe's uh, Faust and Mephistopheles in the story being uh, tormented. Uh, better to end existence than to live it, because life is suffering. And it's funny, again, that he would go to Faust, because Jung loved Faust, but he doesn't mention that that's why he's mentioning Faust, because of Jung. Nor does he even mention, as a Nietzschean, it's, it boggles the mind, nor does he mention that this is what Nietzsche was getting at. right? Or Camus, but that's separate. This idea... That, and, and I mean, I'm, I'm, I, this is my own translation of Nietzsche, but he says that all great pleasure must have its roots in great suffering. This is not something we have to go back to the Faust, but it makes you sound pretty smart and educated to, just like many of these other authors, quote Faust. But I find it very sad because we should be teaching people and inspiring people to pull on these strings. So when you don't tell them where you found your inspiration or some authors that can go down this hole with you, I think it's a disservice, right? Uh, so as I said, this idea, uh, I said this earlier, right? Albert Camus, he said there's only one serious question in philosophy, and that is whether um, to stuff oneself or to make coffee. And... It, it's been so misunderstood. It's just this exact truth. Um, I've mentioned it before. I can't, it's a, a book called Hardwiring Happiness. This idea that um, because of our negativity bias, we will, of course, always see life as inherently suffering, as the Buddhists try to make us understand. But what most people don't understand, that's not a nihilistic teaching in Buddhism. It is... Uh, an affirmation of life because like Camus or Nietzsche who ask us to, to embrace the eternal return that life and its suffering the vicissitudes all of these little negative experiences that's what make up the human experience that is Gestalt that's exactly what this podcast is trying to get at, but they never get around to it. Life itself is gestalt. What that means is you cannot separate the good from the bad. This is this left and right um, brain thinking. I think maybe that's what they've misunderstood. We're breeding, and I've been saying this for a while, that we're actually breeding, nurturing, uh, negative, right, uh, narcissism is encouraged in our society, right? You know, uh, get rich, uh, become famous. and But what's the opposite of narcissism? That's openness. Openness is absolutely trod on in our society. Definitely not encouraged. Barely able to even uh, survive in this day and age. That's, again, Nietzsche's teaching of the eternal return. Why... Does suffering make us suffer because we play the victim? That's Nietzsche's eternal return. Or 
finding the meaning that quickens to Jung, right? The, the happy fiction. So when you highlight the positive, when you understand that, as Rudyard Kipling said in his, his great poem, If, that when you're able to treat triumph and disaster both as the imposters they are, that is your true freedom. Because that's when you're able to embrace the good and bad as ordered. That's your eternal return. You're never truly free until you want to relive life exactly the way it happened. Right? Because that is all we can do. So the hack nowadays is to highlight the positive and, uh, you know, I mean, you don't ignore the thing. You don't ignore the negative, but you don't highlight it either, right? And so they go on. Um, they talk about religious practice is to operate with meaning. And I actually agree. Again, I'm surprised that they don't mention Jung because Jung wrote about this a lot, that he believed that uh, ritual and ceremony was a part of our being. It doesn't have to be religious. It just has to be uh, meaningful. Uh, he says, to see understanding in chaos. I totally agree. Uh, life is chaos. The universe is chaos. Uh, we have um, this massive computer in our brain that helps us parse all of this data. Uh, and it's that um, uh, supercomputer that can see into chaos. We don't, we don't see patterns, per se, in the way that we think, uh, meaning that all of a sudden, oh, there's a picture. No, what we're doing is we're connecting dots ourselves. It's still chaos, but we're able to make sense of the chaos, if that makes sense. <laughs> right? Uh, so we cannot have the good without the bad. I've already covered that. They covered that, right? And that's where I mentioned Nietzsche, where he said about um, uh, there must be... Uh, uh, Any joy must have its roots in great suffering, right? This is the non-dualist approach, this yin and yang idea. Um, I don't know if they mentioned Blake again. Uh, suffering in heaven is, yes, they did, actually. It's beautiful. I love that because there's another story I've told before that William Blake said that there must be suffering in heaven because otherwise, right, it would make no sense. I've mentioned this before as well, this idea that heaven was a lesson for us to, to embrace our lot here on earth. Because imagine going to heaven, almost nothing would have meaning if everything was perfect and, and you lived forever. Imagine if you loved, I know I use this example too much, but imagine if you loved bowling um, and you wanted to get a perfect score. Well, in heaven, it wouldn't be much difficulty because you could keep practicing or you could, of course... Uh, maybe be perfect at it, or spend uh, a century or two uh, practicing to get good. But what kind of a meaning would it have if there was no risk? Right. So it's the chaos that gives the gravitas to to our experience. And so they go on and talk about truth, logos, and mythos. Right. Uh, not the untrue but an idea of how myth 
is kind of the archetype or the universal unconscious or kind of like uh, William James' um, uh, extra consciousness from his radical empiricism, that uh, narrative myth, um, uh, logos, imagination, uh, literature, poetry, these can all be um, a template that we can draw from to apply to new experience, right? Uh, we have nothing to compare an experience to. We don't want to be at a complete loss for action. That's how we can use previous experience. Well, it's a little like this, it's a little like this. We put it together. That's why the brain is among the most plastic um, items on this earth. It's able to apply itself in, well, mind-boggling ways, if I'm allowed to say. And so they talk about myth uh, as the real deep truth, logos as simple truth, right? Something that can be uh, misused or misconstrued even. They go on and talk about myth and narrative as its importance to life, to meaning. I've already just mentioned that. Science must have some narrative and myth uh, for logos, to guide them, right? Telos, that's what we would call as their guide. So it's very important uh, that they be by guided by something, right? Uh, truth is uh, an agreement. We've discussed this before, William James in his discussion with a fellow philosopher, this idea that uh, truth is just an agreement we've settled upon, so we should always keep that sense of doubt. So there needs to be some sort of guide, ethos, uh, something, uh, principle that, that uh, guides us. This is why we mentioned about morality, right? That acts as a, a placeholder for when uh, we do find ourselves in a position that doesn't have clear guidelines. And I believe Jordan Peterson mentions Dawkins again, talking about a transcendent object. Without a belief in the transcendent, or we'd call, I call that metta. So I find that weird, and it's not uncommon that you will find someone in science who believes there can be something that we would consider a transcendent object. So something that has unexplainable properties. So we can call that ritual, ceremony. In this case, I think he's referring to... Um, meditation and how it works for those even when they don't believe in the transcendent. But that's where, again, they make a mistake because they make this great leap to, to, to assume that the belief in the transcendent, be it object or experience, is an all or nothing. Right? This is the hilarious joke that we have atheists on one side and religious zealots on the other where the proper stance is in the middle. Doubt. Right? Right? Doubt. Trust is faith. Right? That's what faith is. It's, it's trust in the face of doubt. So I find myself in the middle. And that's why I laugh. And I mentioned there's, there's a, an individual on the internet by the name of Darth Dawkins. He considers himself to be uh, like the, the opposite of, uh, of the actual Dawkins because he's actually pretty horrible religious zealot. Like he's an absolute 
toxic uh, religious uh, zealot. But he truly is the bizarro of Dawkins because Dawkins supposedly does have an open mind when it comes to some of these things, whereas this Darth Dawkins does not have an open mind. <laughs> uh, what did I put here? He said, religious zealot, not guided by reason or logic, which this is what Jordan Peterson mentioned. He said he respects Dawkins because he's driven or guided by reason and logic. I argue he's probably not. Uh, if uh, he is firmly in the atheist camp, um, yet uh, he follows meditation, I, I just laugh. But anyway, and he does not believe that truth will set them free. Right? And they talk about myth and truth uh, mattering. Matters, right? So, again, they get on this idea of believing nothing, apathy. Again, I'm shocked that Nietzsche never mentioned. Uh, Zarathustra, Nietzsche's uh, greatest work, he talks about this. He warns that we would get to this point where people would just be purely apathetic. Um, they believe in nothing. Uh, maybe hedonism, uh, maybe theater. Uh, but it wasn't mentioned. But they did talk about people believing in nothing. Would we be in a state of hedonism alone? They go on and talk about why science tries to tear down belief. And I ask, is it fear? Is it uncertainty? Ignorance? Right? And I point to Jung on alchemy. Again, once again, I'm surprised that you know there wasn't any uh, uh, pointing towards some strings that the audience could, uh, could pull on themselves. Because uh, a lot of what we're discussing here was written down by Jung a little over 100 years ago. I've said this many times before, a man and his symbols, uh, that's popular. But I highly recommend um, uh, Carl Jung, uh, Modern Man in Search of a Soul. Because uh, I've said this before, it's a series of lectures. So he had very limited time. Right? He wanted to get across his, his therapy, his belief, his understanding, his message, uh, as clearly and as concisely as possible. So that's why I recommend it to people, so you don't have to go out and read uh, a couple dozen books. He has a lot to read. But on that, we're approaching the 30-minute mark again, so we're going to pause here and continue on again. Thank you for sticking with us. Well, and here we go. Uh, I apologize. I left off uh, one little quote when they said, science uh, as a redemptive enterprise. I wrote that down because I thought that was excellent. I mean, that is so true. That's why we need to keep doubt, right? Because maybe we were wrong. Right? That's the tetralemma, the Chetascoti again. So that led to where does wrong itself come from, right? So this is separate from, you know, your theory being wrong. Now we're talking about morality, right? So they were talking about how does a scientist, an atheist, have moral values? I used to run into that myself when I was a young lad. I had a couple guys, we used to go camping a lot. And sitting around the campfire, my one buddy who was raised, raised by some, um, I guess you'd say, born-again fundamental Christians, and the other buddy was uh, Lutheran. And it's funny, too, because uh, he had a weird relationship with his religion and his God and, and his father. And uh, his father and I had a very different relationship. We used to sit around um, in the screen room, me and like a porch out back, screened in, and we'd sit around 
drinking tea because it's weird. I've always liked tea. Uh, talking about the Gnostic Gospels. <laughs> it was a weird experience, i got to tell you. But um, he was a brilliant man. Uh, but because he didn't have these discussions with his son, or his son, honestly, I think the real reason, his son was never honest with him. Um, they never had this discussion. So his son was tormented, I think. And I used to get asked what kept me from killing people, what kept me from doing terrible things, because I didn't believe in what they believed, right? The fear of God, whatever you want to call it. But I chuckle because, again, this goes back to the same idea. It's like, because I don't believe in your concept of God, you actually think that would just make me an animal and talk about propaganda, right? I would just degenerate into this ape-like creature. <laughs> Arguably, this is what Nietzsche was trying to talk about. Like, what is uh, an ape to a man but uh, but uh, ridic ridicule, right? Well, well, what is a religious zealot going to be to to a person who has their own agency, has their own faith in their own um, abilities, right? Would you not arguably laugh at someone who needed the extra crutch? At least I used to. That was my joke. I used to think that, uh, you know, these people needed that extra little bit of help. Uh, and I thought them less. But I don't anymore. I don't see them as less. I see them as more powerful uh, because by the nature of how we're built, it seems, the human creature just will never believe in itself uh, as much as, um, as someone else would, believe it or not. So to achieve these moonshot goals, to, um, as, as Nietzsche said, to be a, a jumping-off point for man, um, we need to have faith that we can achieve more than we believe ourselves uh, capable of achieving which is a difficult thing, right? It's what they were talking about. It is so common that you'll find someone who's overconfident, right? We've discussed this before. If we can find a happy medium where we can have people with real talent, real ability, and confidence, gosh, nothing would stop us, am I right? But they go on and talk about uh, kindness over belief, reciprocity, equanimity. That's my writing that down, I think, um, because I think that's uh, why Buddhism pushes equanimity so hard, is because when you understand, recontextualize the self, when you understand there is no, there's nothing honorable in being better than someone else. It's only honorable being better than your previous self. But the next step after that is to understand that you're no different than someone else. You don't deserve more than someone else compassion, understanding, this equanimity, this um, feeling of uh, union. That's what can minimize our selfish drives. Right? And so they go into this. They go into beauty and aesthetics. Not a surprise, considering that's what uh, the Greeks were obsessed with. Uh, Nietzsche was obsessed with. Um, he talked about how people used aestheticism um, uh, to satisfy some of these needs. And I argue that um, he may have predicted what has come to pass is uh, by filling these voids with consumerism or uh, influencers, uh, 
or cliqueism or cultism or whatever you feel uh, this need of agency, of, uh, of knowing thyself, of finding your own uh, telemetry, your own uh, direction, your own path that you're going to follow with devotion and confidence and commitment. Without doing this, putting in the hard work, believing in oneself and other, right? You become, just like they said, you believe in nothing. You become a herd beast, as Nietzsche warned us. Or worse, uh, you develop this modern malaise, as uh, Carl Jung warned us of, that you just don't feel anything anymore. I think it's called anhedonia, an anhedonia in psychology, when you just can't feel the good or the bad anymore, right? This kind of makes the point that you can't have the good without the bad, right? Because it allows you to feel them, right? So he goes down, uh, why does beauty attract? Uh, why does it have a draw for us? Um, uh, the butterfly, he talks about how uh, one butterfly can see um, uh, a lack of symmetry of one in a million, right? So that's near perfect if you think about it, right? But that's a shortcut. See, I've talked about this before. What is tribalism? Tribalism is a shortcut to trust. So what is this symmetry view in the butterfly for mating? It's not because they want the prettiest butterfly. The symmetry of the butterfly shows their genetic superiority, right? So it's just, it's a shortcut to see who's your optimum mate, right? Hey, do we, are we copacetic here, right? And he says, now, symmetry is preferred in people. Yet, symmetry is weird and off-putting to most people, believe it or not. Um, it is true. I mean, look at... Um, Mutts and dogs. How often have we talked about how uh, some of the nicest dogs, the prettiest dogs, tend to be um, a mix, right? But also studies showing that if a face is too symmetrical, this is part of the reason why I think the human mind can see uh, through computer-generated images. It's because if it's too symmetric, we know something's off. I mean, it, it almost talks about this idea of the Matrix. If you remember the movie The Matrix, uh, they, they actually said that they had to remake The Matrix because the first time it was perfect. And uh, supposedly we rebelled. We didn't accept. And this is based on our psychology. It really is. It's not fiction. Because I've mentioned this before, the mouse utopia experiment that was conducted by the National Institute for Mental Health. Um, off the top of my head, I can't remember the, uh, the doctor in charge. Starts with an F. But you can look that up. Um, he gave a warning back in the 70s that uh, no matter how perfect we make things, in fact, the more perfect we make it, the quicker will we meet our doom. So that's why I push uh, this idea of constant discomfort is our, should be our natural resting state. Because as a human creature, we're either atrophying or we're growing. And that's what's proven in this uh, mouse utopia experiment, right? You gave them everything they needed, the space they needed, the food they needed, and they degenerated. They degenerated. Right? So, again, this is this idea 
of the left and right hemispheres, which is what Gilchrist is, is uh, I mean, it's his field, but it's, again, explaining this in science, what's been a philosophy um, truth for millennia. The left hemisphere wants it black and white, right? The left hemisphere parses individual pieces of data. It can't look at the whole, right? It's the microcosmic understanding of its universe, the macrocosmic understanding of the universe, the non-dual approach, the big picture that's done by the right hemisphere. It can see both inside the problem and the problem itself. This is the idea of the yin and yang. There is no separation between the yin and yang, the black and white. If you look at the yin and yang symbol, it shows that even in the heart of the black, there is the, uh, the eye of white. And so they go on, and then we're talking about gestalt here again, or, or for the first time. When they talk about music, right? You can't separate music from its notes. Music itself is gestalt, because the beauty of music lies in its composition. I argue not, not completely true, because there's beauty in a single note. But So he talks about goodness, truth, beauty, transrational, not irrational. Right, so transrational is this something like what Nietzsche, um, what Carl Jung was talking about this idea that the archaic self needed a cause for every effect. Right, we were talking about this, um, uh, with uh, Dawkins, this transcendent object. So, if you can have a transcendent object and understand that you don't understand why. It's of value. It, it has so much meaning. That's transrational, right? It's something that you just must accept. You can't rationalize. You can't cognize. Right? So it, uh, they, well, they compared transrational with epiphenomenal. I guess if you think of it in the sense that um, our experience itself uh, it's a requirement so we might as well make it uh, make it so it talks about beauty as a side effect right and criticizing pinker here was interesting because he said music was useless i don't disagree many of these scientists uh, have absolutely no passion or even i believe they discuss this in the podcast many of them may be on what we would consider a spectrum so they may be deficient in certain areas of cognition so they can't appreciate music because they may be autistic or uh, you know whatever reason they're just different so they don't understand right because I argue I've Ted said this before there isn't a neurodiversional and a neurotypical we're all neuroatypical so we all have our, our our good and our bad qualities and they go on talk about music poetry and art passion and meaning says, guides towards the sacred. Again, as a tantric Buddhist, I, I chuckle because I argue there's no separation between any of it. Everything is a guide towards the sacred. But that's fine if you want to start to categorize what you consider a guide to the sacred and what isn't. I laugh because if you think about it, um, nearly every tradition has an idea of... A, of um, what do they call it? Uh, 
Well, they would think about death or cemeteries or all sorts of different aspects of life that are definitely not beauty or goodness or truth, but is also uh, an avenue to enlightenment, so a guide towards the sacred. Uh, and so I made a note, uh, providence, right? I like providence in, in uh, rather than saying sacred or divine. Uh, and just as a note, Emerson, uh, his idea of divine in the flower, right? So if you want to talk about the sacred or providence, think of it more like Emerson uh, when he explained the power that, that makes flowers grow. I mean, that can be your divinity, right? That's transrational. Like, what is it that makes this wonderful thing appear? You know? So we talk about meaning in music transcends language. That's that transrational, uh, right? We, we, it's not something we can express or explain. I argue it's because, once again, we think and live in images. Uh, and so to be able to express music uh, is even harder. And it says, uh, and it can transfer meaning to cultures without context or understanding. I really enjoyed this section where they were talking about this idea that meaning can have value and meaning to others. Sound, though. I laugh because, again, as a Nietzschean uh, and a Jungian, you'd think there'd be some understanding of the Vedic uh, teachings, right? Because heavily influenced, both Jung and Nietzsche, were the Rig Veda, the Upanishads, um, the Bhagavad Gita. So within that is this, it's called Shruti, uh, to hear. Oh, pardon me, I might have said the wrong word, but... The Sanskrit word to hear is also to sing. It's a song, right? So when you're listening to a sutra, it's meant to be sung. It's meant to be a hymn. It's meant to be transrational. So this idea is nothing new. And we have multiple examples that we can draw from. Just they weren't mentioned. Again, it might be for time reasons. Uh, I mentioned the primal people, right? They didn't like uh, they didn't like anything until they'd heard. Uh, he gave this as an example. He said there were primal people that they were shunned. Very similar again to Carl Jung, how he went and studied this stuff. But he said they gave some examples of Western culture to some primal people, and they didn't like anything of what they saw until they heard some music. And when they heard some music, that's when they felt the connection, right? Well, I mean, this is gestalt again. If you're showing people a package of a person that is so divergent from their understanding, is it so hard to understand that they're not going to be able to place meaning and understanding? But music, music's universal, right? I, I found that really, really quite interesting. Uh, so again, music and art is proof of placebo, in my opinion. Right? Arguably, almost anything transrational could be proof of placebo, which I argue is our superpower. Um, 
the fact that we're able to believe strongly enough that we can heal ourselves. We can change reality with our imagination. It's, yes, and this isn't science fiction. This is placebo. I've explained this many times before. Uh, medicine usually tries to dis, uh, deter negative placebo, but I think you can't separate them, right? Non-duality. So when, say, you want to take an antidepressant, for example, your average antidepressant usually takes a week to two weeks to take effect. But the doctor will tell you, wait, six weeks to notice change because we don't notice slow incremental changes, our psychology. Two, because it's a week or two, could be three. We tell them six so that they don't negatively impact their healing, right? Because if it's, it's been two weeks, he told me it should have started working by two weeks, then you're actually um, going to impinge on the functionality, right? So the, 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 um, the potential can be, uh, can be, uh, can be limited by, uh, by not believing, right? So medicine understands the power of placebo, that it can make people not believe in the efficacy of a medication and therefore the medication won't work for them. Certainly, very commonly, it won't work as well. So the same can be true that if we were to convince people to believe in their course of treatment, right, must be based in truth again, but if we can convince people to be an agent and trust in their therapy, arguably uh, the therapy itself would be uh, more effective. We've seen this in scientific studies. Because people coming to a study, being willing to try out a new protocol to heal, they're 30, 34 to 36% more likely uh, to see benefit from whatever the treatment is because of this idea of agency. Because they're looking to heal. They're not looking to, uh, to uh, nitpick or second guess. It's this idea of trust in doubt what we often call faith, but this has a negative uh, uh, attachment to it, right? So they go on. Uh, speech as melody, right? The meaning in the melody. Um, I don't know if that's as much relevant as what I noticed today. There's a politician giving a speech and... Uh, both when they were speaking their own words and when they were quoting someone, it was boring as get out. Like they had no passion whatsoever. I can understand when someone's reading a quote that they lack a certain amount of passion. Uh, what do they call it? They're not as emotive. But when you're speaking for yourself, but that's when I realized I am very emotive. Um, but that might be my neurodivergenal self because I've been forced um, to use tone and intonation and all these other aspects of my speech to get across my message because I'm not much of a body language person. We'll get into that another time, this discussion of uh, meaning and message, presence. Uh, very, very, very... Um, um, relative for us as a human 
human being because our communication, I mean, arguably they missed that when they talked about how uh, meaning of a song can be, uh, what do you call it, um, tr- can, can um, transcend language and culture. But the same thing can be said for mime. Right? If a mime were to show that meaning transcends culture, language, they miss this idea that eighty um, percent of our language is nonverbal, so there is no language barrier between humans at that point. So the only barrier is presence. So if you're not present and aware and focused, then you will miss their body language and therefore eighty percent of the message, right? So, and they go on, um, and so this is where the quote went a little weird. I'd have to go back and look, um, but Jordan Peterson at, uh, what is it, one hour, 23 minutes, says that language emerged from music, and he attributed it to Nietzsche, I believe. Now... He, wow, he really is fast and loose with how he could be talking about when he wrote about uh, Wagner. This is really early. I wouldn't even mention some of that early stuff because he was operating from a very, very toxic place. When he, near the center, when his philosophy really got tight and, uh, and cohesive, be more towards uh, Zarathustra and Beyond Good and Evil and uh, the Antichrist and the genealogy of... I won't... I, I might be wrong there. Um, my apologies. But definitely in Beyond Good and Evil and the Antichrist, um, his idea that language was the mother of consciousness was more important. Right? And language would emerge from music in the sense that right we made sounds and sounds became notes and you know this sort of idea but i didn't like how this kind of took us off this string that we were talking about how language is really the barrier to communication Right? Cognition, culture, and nonverbal communication is is something shared across cultures and languages and generations even. But what seems to be limiting us is this convention of language. Right? This need to express it in a certain way. But we didn't go there. And the, that's my own take on this, is that this whole section of the podcast, we should have been talking about something a little bit different. But he talks about music and patterns, um, right, Fibonacci or Gestalt. Uh, music as representational, right, patterns of being. Unity is our goal. So this idea that 
since we're all looking to yoke oneself to the divine or to the universe or just be part of the system, we want to be within, not without. This idea that music itself is a pattern, it is a system. Um, so because of that, it makes us feel more connected, is my take on that. And then they talk about a call to proper action in the world. I mean, that's beauty and aestheticism, this idea that um, things could be better. And they say music allows access to a presence. We can connect, right? Similar to uh, Will James' consciousness or Carl Jung's Della, the um, universal consciousness. This music, uh, mantra, uh, meditation, uh, even the Templars had, um, they had a, a chant of their own that they used to commune, right? Uh, their, their exact same idea of meditation. And again, they mentioned Jacob's Ladder. Right? We know that there is something amiss. Right? At least this idea of in our existence and that there is something more systematic or, or beautiful that gives us hope to, uh, to, to, to struggle on. And then they say uh, it's a practical necessity of knowledge and why the left uh, hemisphere-dependent world today. So this idea that we have to have passion, we have to have... Uh, at least an understanding of trans-rational uh, products, meta, uh, ritual, ceremony, uh, the trans-rational nature of music. Uh, there's something to be said nowadays that being separated from, from music uh, causes uh, some sort of hemispherical disconnect. Right, that music, and they didn't get into it in the podcast, but music allows us to connect the left and right hemisphere in a way. Because, because music itself cannot be separated, the notes and the piece, that it requires both the left and the right to work. It's an interesting thought that they didn't get into. Uh, so I, I wonder about a, a philosophical paradox, right? The left versus the right. Um, I don't know so much uh, that it's a paradox. Um, I personally think that we're encouraging people uh, to to be very black and white, which is this, uh, what did they call it? Right brain deficient. So they ask, are we destroying our environment uh, destruction of who we are, how our society works, our history, our goals, right? our guide, and our compass being lost. I argue, uh, was it when we began uh, to no longer include the zenith and the nadir on the compass points? Huh. And so... Um, as I said, the zenith and the nadir. Have we lost our guide? Have we lost our compass? I think it relates, right? I've mentioned this before. The, um, the, the Delphic 
maxim of know thyself was the heart of Greek, so arguably the heart of our philosophy. And um, there used to be two additional compass points, the zenith and the nadir. The zenith is a much more commonly used word today, and it means the best that we can be, the best individual. And the nadir is the worst. So I find it hilarious that we're talking about losing our guide or compass and we no longer teach that direction in reality isn't just the compass of north, south, east, and west, but your own internal compass. Right? Are you directing yourself towards being better or worse? Right? And so they went on... Uh, Talked about a bureaucratic vision where people are left out. Uh, they're talking about why the system's so broken. So they don't believe it's a plan. They don't think it's a cabal. I love that word. That's why I wrote it down. Um, he just think they think there's something uh, bigger going on. Uh, they think it's a, a neural proclivity. I don't disagree. Like I said, um, the mouse utopia experiments, right? We're too, we're too, uh, we have it too easy, arguably. He talks about a Luciferian intention. So that's what I don't agree with. I don't think we have a tendency towards evil, per se. I think we just have a tendency towards um laziness and apathy and, and uh, being demoralized. But they go on and talk about this Luciferian intention, right? Replace total with parts, change, uh, recontextualize things, right? So this idea that people just want to make things worse on purpose, right? Uh, they just want to watch the world burn. So he, they think this just bureaucratic, it's algorithmic, uh, systemic, it's because they're trying to perfect everything and they've kind of lost the one and the many, this idea. Uh, theory over reality. Uh, experience being worthless. That's not wrong, this idea that individual experience is the only thing that matters. Uh, thus, there's nothing you can learn from others. I've ran into that myself. Uh, because I'm so uh, widely read, I obviously tend to quote others more than give my own opinion. Because, I mean, who wants my opinion, right? <laughs> uh, but of course I get nowadays only in the last few years I get people going oh who cares what the other people say don't you have any thoughts of your own and I'm like really wow these people are just toxic like, they're not looking to learn or understand they're just looking to uh, criticize or, or uh, belittle it seems so they go on uh, they just want to tick a box which is more important than benefit which is true right this is this idea of zenith or the nadir Right? So if you are, say, in public service, are you there to help others or are you there uh, as a self-serving um, act? And so they go on and talk about a deeper problem than uh, any manifestations, more profound uh, than the individuals themselves. And so I argue, well, yeah, there's nothing new here. 
Uh, I love uh, Lincoln's speech. I believe it was the Gettysburg Address where he talked about the darker aspects of our nature. Right? Or Carl Jung's shadow work. Right? You can never come to grips with evil in this world till you understand the evil that you're capable of. And once you do, not only do you know yourself, you can also prevent this evil, knowing that you're capable of it, but you also understand why it is in the world, and you know, and you're not as shocked by it. So they go on, we talk about myth of the master and emissary. This was a previous uh, McGill, McGilchrist book. Very interesting. This idea, not separate from, but this idea of... Um, Free will, right? They, they're always talking about what is free will, why don't we use it, right? Do we even have it? Well, unless we're present, aware, in the moment, you're not acting with free will, you're reacting, right? So they talk about uh, a ruler, a wise, uh, you know, versus his uh, secondary, his, uh, what would you call it, his emissary, his, um, his second in command, who's intemperate, hot-headed, right? This general or this underling, which is nothing new. This goes back to the I Ching. Uh, Carl Jung talked about this, that these archetypes were present in a 10,000-year-old book out of China called the Chinese Book of Change, uh, the, the I Ching. And it, it talks about that uh, only... Uh, only certain people can rule because it takes such great, um, takes so much of us, right? As opposed to today, I like to quote Nietzsche who said, uh, politics nowadays, and it hasn't changed much since his time, asks the least of us. Is it any surprise that it attracts the least among us, right? And this was taught in the Chinese Book of Change as well, that it takes... Uh, a great sage, a great man, a man of great conviction to be able to lead and uh, man, but we won't go into that. That's, uh, I digress enough as it were, right? But uh, the example I use is uh, the Sith Lord and Apprentice, right? This is the archetype resident in Star Wars. If you know the story of a Sith Lord, so the Sith Lord can only have one apprentice at a time, because the dark side of the force uh, comes with it uh, this aspect that um, the destiny of a, a Sith apprentice is to destroy his master, right? This idea of the master and the grasshopper, right? Someday the student must um, better the teacher, right? So it, the, all of these archetypes are resident in, in so much of our life uh, but again, learning from Jordan Peterson that we have to modernize some of these uh, lessons, these stories, these, um, these myths, these narratives. So you can see the same master and emissary lesson in uh, Sith Lord and his apprentice. Right? The Sith Lord is looking, right? Selfish self-interest, right? Wants an apprentice because it, you know, power to him and this whole dynamic. But in the end, the real relationship is doomed from the very beginning. 
And so they go on and talk about Milton's Lucifer, right? The Luciferian uh, intellectual presumptions, right? Which I find is much more common in these people who spend their time uh, philosophizing and not doing a lot of living. I've made the jokes before where um, there's certain people that I will listen to uh, when it comes to meditation or mindfulness, and there's certain people I will not listen to. And those groups pretty easily break down into two camps. The ones that I, I will listen to are the ones that have uh, reasons why they were attracted to mindfulness, meditation, the practice, whatever it is. Uh, benefits they find in their day-to-day -day life, how they find it helpful and why, and blah, blah, blah. Anecdotal evidence, personal. And the people I don't listen to are much more common, sadly, are the ones who talk about why meditation is so so special, is because what it can do and the potential it has. And yet they have nothing personal to share about that. I've given you a number of examples. Um, Cornfield is a good example. He's written how many books, yet he really never explains how it's benefited him in his life. Right? He'll say, oh, it helps me so much. I'm so much at peace. But peace from what, dude? Like, you know, <laughs> if you know the stories of these people, they have absolutely nothing to be stressed about. Or Tara Brock. She's openly admitted that she um, went to school because she saw the opportunity to make great money in the mindfulness field and has no stories of how it's helped her. She'll talk about how it can help you overcome these things and all this other jazz. And sure, there's something to be said that they've used, possibly used mindfulness to, to get rich by selling uh, a bill of goods to these people because, again, uh, these are the same individuals that are selling... Um, well, it's, I would say cultural appropriation, but they're not teaching mindfulness from the East. What they're teaching is a version of what I prefer, and I'm stealing it from a book, make mindfulness. It's not mindfulness. It's not. It's, uh, it's no better than, say, the Wim Hof, right? Uh, he took uh, Tumo, uh, Tibetan... Uh, well, not just Tibetan, but that's the name. Tumol is from the Tibetan. It's the uh, doctrine of psychic heat. It's actually yoga. And he, like so many, attached to this in a time of great suffering because he wouldn't accept a loss. He obsessed on these different ideas, right? Same as the pranayama. He's taken a protocol that's worked for many people for many centuries and taken it to an extreme that's causing tinnitus for some, uh, hyperventilation for many, and just plain waste of time, energy, and money for many. When if we were to just teach uh, satisampajana, mindfulness of the breath, Right? allows you to be mindful, be focused, be aware, be present, manages your emotional regulation, helps you learn what's called box breathing or diaphragmatic breathing. Stop breathing to the chest. The chest is panic breathing. All of us do this, um, it, which is why we have this mood regulation problem. 
the sooner we start breathing like actors and breathe to the diaphragm, the better we'll all be because you'll be less stressed, which will cause less stress, and other people will be less stressed. It's, it's, like, a, it's like a mindful game of Jenga. But I digress. I'll move on. And they talked about this idea of why uh, we evolve to denature, right? Not to, to utopia. And I've mentioned this before. Um, they mentioned Stalinist Russia and missed some opportunities there, but they mentioned that it was criminal to suffer in Stalinist Russia, right? Be, you know, it's completely abhorrent that to, to even suggest that the system is failing, so you can't be suffering. They mentioned, I don't know how true this is, but the idea still makes the point that a country uh, made starvation illegal for doctors to list on death certificates. So here we have the right hemisphere versus left. So we've seen in science, someone who's had a stroke in the right hemisphere, they'll actually deny reality. It's that left, the left hemisphere thinking is able to ignore whatever it like. Right? Black is not white even. Whereas the left uh, as an anomaly detection system. So this non-dual approach, right? You can't use one effectively without the other. And they mention uh, once a piece is removed from the left hemisphere... It's gone, right? non-existent, not just denied. So the left hemisphere is even more extreme, something we've seen in some of these uh, extreme cult positions, that if it's not within my map, because that's what they said, if, the, if the, the left hemisphere hasn't mapped this out, he used the example of mapping your mouth with your tongue. found a little awkward, but this idea that if the left hemisphere doesn't consider it salient, relevant, or even realistic, existent, I guess this is the word I'm looking for, then it just does not exist. It's not a denial. It's not a minimization. It's full stop, does not exist. They go on to the left hemisphere, peripheral vision as an example, right? Not seeing versus it not being there, right? If it's not in the left map, it's not real. It's deconstructionism in a sense, right? So it's not just reapplying meaning. The left brain itself will just negate aspects altogether. And they go on and say, should be versus what is versus what could be, right? That's... That's the higher order thinking stuff. They didn't get into this in psychology, which you think you think they would. Uh, there's this idea that we have an autopilot that's trying to save ego depletion, right? Uh, higher order thinking takes energy. So we try to go through life um, as automatically as possible. And that's where this left brain... Um, uh, what do you call it here? as an anomaly uh, register. Right. All right, so they also go on, why does this seem to be intensifying lately? This is interesting too. I'd love you to take note of this. 
they talk about whether technology is exacerbating what's going on, right? Uh, has success led to hubris, right? Because we have achieved so much success, we have fixed that, this, and the other thing. But I just want to point to a, a philosopher out of France, here I think in, in uh, Canada now. His name is Hervé Fisher. And he wrote a book called, uh, in French, uh, I can't remember the name, but it's uh, Digital Shock, I believe is the translation. It's a book on what he called the paradoxical uh, laws of our digital age. And believe it or not, the first paradoxical rule of the digital age, or the law of the digital age, applies here. And he said, as technology advances, our psyche, our cognition, ourselves, regress, regress at a proportional rate. Right? So he argues, as technology advances, our cognition is atrophying or... We're not using it. It's out of practice. But this is not a new theory that technology is what's dumbing down our society. So they go on. It says, seeing the world as meaningless and mechanistic, you lose value. You become anxious. You fail to have certainties, right? Trust. Rather than admit they have no telos or telemetry, they have no direction or they don't have control. They don't have that agency I was mentioning. Thus, they feel unsafe. They mentioned how common, oh, I feel unsafe. Well, this is feeling of control, control what you can, having a sense of agency. All of this relates. They talk about intolerance, not allowed to speak about something. Right? Because someone feels unsafe. Um, this, again, has to do with language and cognition. Right? Because without the ability to know thyself, right? this is why it's so important that I argue that Marsh McLuhan warned us about this. He said that the written language was important because it was the first time we were able to express ourselves share ourselves outside of ourselves, outside of geography and even time. But I argue in this current age, we're actually becoming a verbal species again because not only are they rewriting history, things being censored, but because uh, knowledge, opinions, uh, even information is no longer resident in our libraries or our internets, right? The internet's being scrubbed uh, for old info, old ideas, uh, what have you. Our books uh, regularly from our libraries. I mean, it's shocking to me that I can't find anything older than a few years old nowadays in libraries. They just get rid of them all, um, right? It's the same as anything else, right? How can you have an audience um, if you don't have uh, content? But I digress. They move on, and again, I mentioned this earlier, that Jordan Peterson expresses his surprise at Sam Harris. I apologize, I may have said the wrong person when he was talking about meditation. But he said, 
he was surprised to find out Sam Harris, who's a, an, an atheist, uses meditation. And he considers it's because he sees, he sees value in it. But again, Jordan Peterson doesn't seem to be able to understand that you can see value or you can find the meaning that quickens, as Jung would say, without needing to believe in a God. Right? Because he's surprised that he finds respite from the present. Right? Sam Harris. Right? Respite or shelter. And he considers ideological certainty to conquer uncertainty. I found that interesting. A couple uh, little quotes that I wrote down. Ideological certainty. Well, th what that means is you believe it to be certain versus uncertainty. So what they're talking about here, and I, I, I think they kind of, these are separate discussions. But I like the idea that ideological certainty in the sense of trust, not blind faith, can conquer uncertainty. Doubt. Yes. Or conquer anxiety. Anxiety is the lack of trust. Right? So that's why I wrote down, like, why doesn't Jordan Peterson trust? Right? Because what he just went through with all these fancy words is literally just having trust in the face of doubt. That's what faith is. Right? And I'm not talking about faith in a supreme being, because I don't have that. I'm talking about faith in the system, in yourself, um, what have you. He says, our attention is too drawn or wasted for us to use for meditation. So this is this belief that there's so much going on today that we're not able to manage all of this. But I think that's a mistake. In Buddhism, we teach a Sanskrit word by uh, that's um, it's called Siddhi. It's considered, um, uh, some people consider it a superpower, right? Uh, so your Siddhi of concentration, right? That you could uh, remain in concentration even during an earthquake and a, and a volcano eruption. Well, the Buddha explains city like uh, a, a very skilled hunter, right? His, his, his skill in the hunt is his city. So, of course, to an outsider, if you're able to remain calm and focused, even in the midst of what we would consider this theater of the absurd of our present reality... You would seem like you have supreme powers, but they're just supra-normal powers. It's just an ability beyond the normal man. It's not magic. It's not uh, wizardry. And it's not something beyond, um, beyond the average person to achieve either. It just takes that same commitment, right? That devotion, that confidence, Confidence, that's all it takes. It doesn't take belief. It doesn't take proof. It doesn't even take certainty. It just takes trust. And so we go on, and here's a quote. It's, meditation makes the world make sense by being present. Yes, that's sati sampajana. Exactly. Sati is a word to remember. It's everything I've mentioned before. Remember that nothing in this world is permanent. Um... Yourself is not what you think it is. It's a construct. Uh, 
that you build and reattach to from moment to moment. Um, and, uh, wow, I'm having a seniors moment here. Uh, impermanence, self, and suffering. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, I'm just losing my mind here. I'm sorry. Yes, dukkha, suffering. Or dissatisfaction is a better way to translate that. Right? Or even better, a potter's wheel that's not uh, properly balanced. So it's just, it can't be used. Or it just makes it for one heck of a mess trying to get your job done. Right? So focus, stay on track, uh, and enjoy the ride. That's the trick. That's Santi Sampajana. Sati, remember these truths that, you know, you're not the center of the earth. Uh, you're the cause of this suffering. Nothing's impermanent. And so you apply that in a very positive way. Like I've said, good or bad, nothing lasts. And if you, if you place it properly, when you're having a bad time, you remember it's not going to last. But the same holds true that when you're having a good time, you remember that this too shall not last. So appreciate it. Because appreciating it gives you something to remember next time you're stuck with the bad. So they go on. And they say, adopt spiritual practice for meaning. Right? This is at an hour and 47. Not just for stress response. This was McGrill Chris talking about, again, like that book, McMindfulness. You can treat, teach someone essentially, I say it's Western mindfulness, not even proper mindfulness, but you could teach them a form of mindfulness that if they applied it properly would work, but without the proper intention and meaning and all this jazz, it might not help. And in fact, when they talked about psychedelics, I don't know if they talked about psychedelics, unless I don't know if that was a different uh, podcast, but the same can be said. When it comes to psychedelics, that's the danger. If you don't use them properly, they can cause more harm than good. Yes, there is some potential benefit, but there's also potential damage. So we must be careful. So I think he was talking about a waste of time, but I personally have seen some, um, some, some damage caused uh, by uh, improper uh, application of mindfulness, right? It's, it's not as uncommon as you might think. And so he goes on. Uh, see, uh, oh, no, that's me. I just wanted to uh, share that story that I share often about the Himalayan monk who came over and he was teaching Westerners um, stress reduction. And some of his fellow uh, Himalayan uh, monk brothers asked him why he was teaching the Westerners uh, stress reduction when the whole goal of meditation and therefore his, his practice, his devotion, was to achieve enlightenment. And the monk said, well, I teach them what they want to learn, stress reduction, in the hopes that one day they may want me to teach them what I would like them to learn. Right? Which is this total package of satisampajana, right? That to bring this awareness to all of life's daily activities, not just on a cushion, not just when times are bad, but when times are good and bad. Uh, yes. And arguably that's also the koan of does a, a dog have Buddha nature? And the response is moo, which is the negative, but it's also a bark, but it's also emptiness. This idea that 
as soon as you understand there's no separation between you and the dog, therefore to even question whether the dog has Buddha nature shows your lack of understanding. The whole joke of, tell me you don't get enlightenment without telling me you don't get enlightenment. Right? Ask me whether the dog can achieve enlightenment. Everything can achieve enlightenment. Everything is enlightened. This is uh, shikaku in Japanese. It means we have within us the understanding already. We just have to reawaken to a truth that we already know to be true. Okay, so I'll move on. And uh, they talked about meaning, right? That attention allows us to see or connect the meaning. Focus, presence. I've talked about this. Masho, very important. Or it allows us to highlight our positive focus on our values, redirect our attention to hope, to trust in our path, action in acceptance of both the negative and the positive, but with a highlight on the positive. The Happy Fiction by Young, or The Eternal Return by Friedrich Nietzsche. Monomyth. Oh, hold on here, I'm going to stop and... We're about to hit 30 minutes again. All right, well, we're just going to finish off here. We're near the end. As I said, I was just talking about how this is all nothing new, right? There is nothing new under the sun, but really, this is nothing new. right? The Happy Fiction by Young, The Eternal Return by Nietzsche, Amor Fati by Nietzsche, or uh, The Meaning That Quickens by Young. They're all the same idea. They go on and talk about the I Horus. I've mentioned this before. I laugh because it could just as easily and more likely have used Zoaster uh, or Mitra, uh, the Azura Mazda, this idea that it was our first um, monotheistic religion, but more importantly, it was the first religion that talked about the individual, right? The power of the individual, the importance of the individual, the, uh, the divinity of the individual which is resident in Christianity as well. I've talked about this. Kenosis is to empty oneself of your selfish aspect and fill oneself up with the aspect of Christ, not Christ himself. The bodhisattva ideal in Buddhism, uh, to, be, uh, to, be, uh, to be at one with uh, the universe sort of idea. And again, this all-seeing eye, that's... If you look at the symbol for uh, Zoroastrianism, if you look at the Azura Mazda, this idea of an all-seeing God uh, watching, that's um, Guanyin. That's uh, Avilokiteswara, the, uh, the Bodhisattva of compassion in Buddhism. Uh, it's, uh, it's a Buddha that's uh, worshipped by a, a huge chunk of Asian Buddhists, a canon in Japan, Guanyin, Guanyin Pusa in, in China, uh, Avilokiteswara in, in, uh, in India. This uh, Bodhisattva of compassion is uh, one who sees and one who hears. That's Guan, Guanyin. Guanyin um, Gun is uh, to see, uh, to hear, the one that, uh, right, she's got a, a thousand heads to see our suffering and ears to hear our our cries uh, for for succor and and hands to, to reach down and to lift us up. This is monomyth, right? This idea of the Mother Mary or uh, 
or any guru I mean I don't see a difference with many of these different iconographies I was asked about it in the museum quite often um, how the the iconography changed over time because people would notice differences in in the uh, in the statues so I would explain, right, Bactrian Buddhism, how it had a Greek influence, but it brought them back to not what was different between these statues, but what was shared, what was shared amongst them. And then they go on and talk about attention, redemption, presumption, and uh, totalitarian. Huh. I don't remember how uh, totalitarianism went into that. but So they talk about an engineering god versus an ordered system. That's, right, Buddhism, uh, Emerson, Spinoza, Whitman. That's my take. Uh, I don't see this as a black and white. I don't see you needing to not believe in an ordered system or a god-defined ordered system. I believe there's a happy medium that you could believe that there is a system an order to this chaos in some way, we're just not able to see it, right? Like the me and the wife were talking, it's beyond the pale that people don't understand that how is it that we can know what the nature of God is? I think by the nature of simple, what would you call it, metaphysics, if there is a God, they would make themselves beyond our perception. And if they weren't, we wouldn't know what we were looking at or for. Right? So this is this uh, history we have of, of no iconography in, uh, in certain religions because it's hubris to think that you can carve the image of your God. How can you know? Right? But I digress. Then he mentions Penrose, right? Conscious uh, is biology, not metaphysics. I think definitely a mistake. Um, I mean, the problem lies, and I think this is why William James is great. He wrote a book called Pragmatism, but never published his radical empiricism while he was alive. And I think it's he's not that different from me. He just didn't have the balls to admit that he was wrong, Right? that you have to have some faith. You don't have to believe in something exactly, but you have to believe in something, period. Right? Believe in yourself and others. Uh, otherwise, it leads to that anxiety or apathy. Right? Uh, so he talks about the inanimate and the animate world are not distinct. Exactly. That's the gestalt. That's, uh, that's Shakti in Sanskrit, in Vedanta, in um, uh, Kashmiri Shaivism, that the aspect that we would pray to, the aspect of an ordered universe, is an energy, a divine energy, that we give a feminine aspect to, but it's not this concept of a god. It's just a connecting energy force. That's it. That's all it is. Right? A continuum. I like that. Gestalt. 
a system, right? Trust, faith. That's my take, okay? So actually, I'm going to jump back to the front because what I actually did is I started taking notes in one little section that I found interesting because I actually began listening just for uh, Dr. McGrillchrist and I noticed there's some interesting discussion. So I'm just going to finish this off. They mentioned Milton. Um, uh, denial of the left hemisphere. Uh, denial relating to trauma. I found that interesting that they were in there. Uh, and he mentioned his idea of the tooth being pulled. It takes you months to remap. I have my own issues with that. But the body-mind dysmorphia as psychological denial. right? Chronic illness, life changes. He says it takes years for you to get used to these changes. That's trauma, actually. So it's not that it takes you years. Acceptance can take years for many people, right? So I argue I was right that a lot of this all boils down to the same lesson of acceptance, of awareness, of trauma, of eternal return, of amor fate, right? Uh, again, he's talking about this being not on the map, right? So... Um, Finding out, I just had a friend find out that he had a, a friend pass away suddenly, right? So he's really upset. But I guarantee you, in no small part, he's upset because of the shock, the surprise. It wasn't expected, right? Right. So it, it just did not exist to them in their reality that, you know, a young friend that they had spoken to just recently would be gone forever. It's just not possible. So they just don't think about it. So it takes us accepting that to achieve a balance, right? And again, we talked about this feeling of unsafe. Uh, and I mean, I mentioned a little bit about uh, states from infections or when you take antibiotics, um, when you mess uh, with your microbiome, it actually causes uh, a very similar state of dis-ease. <laughs> uh, and I argue that's what we're dealing with here. Many people um, end up uh, finding themselves either from diet, from the, uh, the ideas they, they hold on to, the, uh, the echo chambers they live within. They end up uh, reinforcing these negative thoughts that were just, you know, natural, uh, uh, what would you call it, survival responses. Um, so for me, it's anecdotal proof of mood disruption from, well, mood disruption itself. So Jordan Peterson goes on um, mentioning Sam Harris, that he suspends his disbelief. I consider it toxic atheism when these... Uh, when these gentlemen are, are attacking religious believers, right? But he says, Sam Harris suspends his disbelief to use meditation. Well, there's where his mistake is. That's the only reason why Sam Harris hates the religious, because once again, I believe he's a closet believer and he just doesn't want to admit it, because he thinks he either has to believe in everything or nothing, which is not true, right? So I argue there's just doubt that's missing. If Sam Harris had an adequate sense of doubt that he might be wrong, he wouldn't have as much trouble 
taking up meditation, right? It's not faith, but it's trust, right? Focus and attention on the right stuff, right? So McGilchrist gives meaning like Jung, right? He fears the utilitarian use of faith only if it leads to more insight, not just better function, right? He gives, like I said before, very similar examples to what's in the McMindfulness book. They talked about the Eye of Horus, right? Horus representing focus or attention, right? Set became Seth, became Satan. I don't know about that. But this negative force, right? The, uh, the all-seeing eye, I mean, he could have gone into that, right? Um, focus conquers darkness, if that isn't true. Right within the Chinese Book of Change, you have um, hexagram 52, which is gun, G-E-N, which means mountain. But it represents keeping still. Because how do you overcome darkness? By not embracing it, by keeping still. Keeping still. And what that means is being present, being aware of what matters and what your intention is, what your telos and your ethos and your lexis. And you know what I mean. Know thyself. And you shan't be uh, enticed by the darkness. Right? So he says, focus conquers darkness. Totalitarian uh, can be. And this is where they were getting. Now I remember. The totalitarianism is um, uh, freedom is slavery idea. right? So if people can't find their own safety within, then they will seek it without. And that's where this totalitarian idea might come in. They said something interesting as well, uh, Egyptology symbology in, in those with uh, schizophrenia, schizophrenia. schizophrenia. Uh, I argue the uh, Egypt symbology is no different than others, it's just what they might be more used to, uh, not to mention the amount of, uh, uh, what you call it, modern media that has uh, Egypt symbology. I mean, it goes all the way back to the turn of the century. Jung and Joyce both wrote about uh, esoterica that was being influenced at the time by or prior by the Theosophical Society. And that hasn't changed all that much. Uh, uh, even Jung said this about a hundred years ago that um, um, scientists and religious people uh, even a hundred years or two hundred years beforehand, three hundred years even, I think he said, would be shocked to know that there was a hundred times more uh, horoscopes being drawn up uh, at that time uh, than there were, right? Because they assumed that um, these animalistic, these uh, like astrology, uh, faith in these sorts of things would die out. But uh, Jung had no idea that not only was it bigger then, whew, fast forward to today, and I think uh, that culture dwarfs any culture there was then. So they really, really push purpose, right? And they're pushing on a God. I push it on a guide, right? So not a God, a guide, right? And one step further, just meaning. I think that's the real takeaway here. I think we should be looking at the meaning and the reasons for both. It's a purpose, right? That's what was intended uh, to be applied. And then again, uh, he rags on Penrose, uh, saying consciousness uh, right, can't be simplified. 
right? Uh, there's no math in self. I mean, Carl Friston is currently proving there may be some math to prove the order and the function uh, and the action of the self. But there's no math that could prove the self, right? So again, uh, I think your final takeaway is that uh, it kind of begins and ends with the right hemisphere. So they said context, but I'll go one step further and I'll say Advaita, which is Sanskrit for non-duality. So we have a left and a right hemisphere for a reason. The left hemisphere parses data, makes sense of things. And the right hemisphere is the big picture. It's the one that puts all of it together and tells us the meaning, what matters. And arguably, hopefully, our path forward. Right? So trust. Trust. So on that, have a great day. I hope I covered everything, but it was, like I said, mainly about the podcast and some of the lessons I got, uh, some of the takeaways, and, and hopefully I gave you a few extra strings to pull on. So have a fabulous day. Well, I'd actually finished, but uh, as I said... I was surprised by a number of omissions in the podcast. And I'll just, I guess I'll, I'll leave it on this one. Uh, I guess one of the most glaring of omissions. I mentioned a couple of times in the podcast, I was surprised that uh, Nietzsche Zarathustra uh, wasn't mentioned. Uh, and I'll give you an example why. So in chapter 15, the thousand and one goals, uh, I'm going to quote based off the Thomas Commons translation. Uh, seems to be the most commonly used. I myself have mentioned it. I prefer R.J. Hollingdale, uh, but the meaning is very close, uh, Thomas Commons. So again, chapter 15, uh, the 1001 Goals. At about halfway through this chapter, um, he starts talking about uh, exactly what this podcast was about. He talks about a table of surmounting. I love that, uh, because... We need to start valuing. Remember in the podcast, they talked about subduing, uh, this idea of valuing everything. But I'll just quote a few uh, lines from, from uh, Thus Spec Zarathustra uh, by Friedrich Nietzsche. He talks about becoming pregnant and heavy with great hopes. Right? He says, values did man assign values. Right? a human significance to these values. He calls man the valuator. It kind of reminds me of kids in the hall, right? Uh, <laughs> that's a funny reference if you get it. Man, love you. Man, the valuator. Valuing is creating. Valuing is the treasure and the jewel of the valued thing. Through valuation only is there value. Without the nut of existence would be hollow. So this is why I am so shocked that we spent nearly two hours in conversation about value, about meaning, um, about creation, about uh, attention and presence, and very little, if anything, was mentioned uh, regarding Jung or Nietzsche. So, 
on that, uh, I'll leave you, and uh, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did.